I'm delighted to share I am now delivering podcast training courses for the London School of Public Relations. The One Day Essentials of Podcasting certificated short course is highly practical and packed full of useful information to get you on the road to producing your own professional podcasts. The podcast course will help you to create, edit, deliver and promote your podcast. The course also provides useful tips and tricks on producing professional and effective results. So you can find out about these in-person and online training courses at educationonfire.com forward slash LSPR. The National Association for Primary Education has an SEND conference in association with the University of Bedfordshire on the 26th of April 2024. This is a hybrid event and available to anybody in person or online. Please go to nape.org.uk for more information. That's nape.org.uk. Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. Thank you so much for being here and thank you to everyone who's left and rated and reviewed our podcast on the platforms they've been listening. It's really, really helpful for us in terms of getting the, the message out there and obviously getting the show listened to as many people as possible. So yeah, if you haven't already, please do that. I'd be really grateful. And also, please just spread the word by telling a friend, a colleague, someone in your family that you think is going to benefit from, from the conversations we have here on Education on Fire. Now, today I'm delighted to be joined by Reed Saras, and his story begins at his own high school, where his life began to diverge from that of his best friend Jamie as soon as he enrolled in advanced classes across the hall. After graduation, the gap widened as Reed pursued an elite degree studying educational opportunity in America. In an attempt to close the opportunity gap between students like him and Jamie, Reed took a job as a teacher at Battery Creek High, a severely under-resourced school in South Carolina where students were flunking out in their classes, not because they were incapable, but because the coursework was too easy. Reed and his team of teachers and students rallied to increase enrolment in the advanced track for those who didn't fit the honours student mould. In one year, the programme doubled to become the largest provider in the state and performance on the college-level tests increased by 20%. Wanting to effect change on a larger scale, Reed founded Equal Opportunity Schools to find and help students all over the country who have been overlooked, discouraged or otherwise missing from higher level learning opportunities. And now, backed by new research and original survey data of millions of teachers and students across the country, Reed's book, The Kid Across the Hall, The Fight for Opportunity in Our School, vividly chronicles Reed's triumphs, setbacks and insights as he learned firsthand that the hard task of educational reform will take much more than the Hollywood myth of the well-intentioned teacher who saves the day. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Reed and this sort of first-hand account of his life and how he's been able to help so many pupils. Hi Reed, thank you so much for joining us here on the Education on Fire podcast. It's always wonderful to chat to someone who has so many sort of facets to their sort of educational journey. From <laughs> we've all obviously been pupils and then probably gone into the education profession, but there's the, 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 I think the the fabric of, of what you've done in, in your uh, in your life and certainly up to now with uh, I know sort of looking to become part of a, a superintendent and, and applying for that as well is, is a wonderful journey. So yeah, thanks so much for being here. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Mark. So where would you like to start? I very often I ask a pinpoint question, but you know, should we start in terms of, of that boy that was uh, in, in, in a classroom and, and, uh, and sort of saw how the world was working about him? Sure, absolutely. Absolutely. I, 
uh, I think my passion for this work came, yeah, in the classroom and in my own house, seeing my foster sister and my best friend get radically different experiences and opportunities for no particularly good reason. Um, and when it came to my uh, best friend, we were literally across the hall from each other. And he was asked to color in dittos in high school and worksheets and, you know, fill in the blank and, and uh, coloring into maps and things like this. And I was being asked eventually about the theory of knowledge and uh, all these interesting questions that set me up for uh, an amazing educational journey that I think Jamie should have had the opportunity to be on as well. And I had experienced before I got into some of those programs in high school, uh, some of the more boring things that Jamie had been a part of and the things where you're just really drilling, uh, you know, some facts and things like this and not getting to the interesting stuff, which had led me to walk the halls and things like this. So I just, in my personal experience, my experience with Jamie and my sister, I saw the best of what education can do. And I think I saw education in many times at its worst. And what was it that you discovered made that big difference? Is it gender? Is it diversity? Is it the right or wrong teacher at the time or a personality clash? How, how does that kind of sort of sort of uh, essentially sort of come across? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think it is different in different contexts. To some extent, I think there's always the power of a Pygmalion effect type of thing. What do you expect? of a student. Um, and that may vary based on gender, race, class, uh, immigrant status, language, uh, all sorts of things in different cultures. But do I look at someone as an educator and say, hey, this person is incredible mind and can do incredible things? Or do I look at them and I see their challenges and their difficulties and their struggles and say, my goodness, they, they've had it really tough. And so I think there's there's somewhere where you can meet in the middle of those um, and you can find and see people for what they've been through while also holding that really high bar for what's possible for their future because the human mind is just and the human spirit are incredible, um, incredibly resilient, incredibly capable. Um, and I always was inspired back to the AP calculus teacher Jaime Escalante who I got to meet before he passed away of the movie Stand and Deliver and he said students will rise to the level of expectations and so I think it, it deals a lot with how does somebody get seen when they walk through the door um, based on what they've been through. Um, and so that's where I focused a lot of my time and energy after seeing that happen um, with people in my life and then becoming an educator. Yeah, I love that. And it's one of the things that comes up so strongly here on the podcast, that sense that a teacher that someone remembers wasn't the person that managed to change their perception of any given academic subject. It was the one that saw them for who they were. They saw their needs and their challenges, but also their gifts as well. And they were able to have... Um, a human to human connection i think you know it, of course you still got sort of teacher and pupil but i think that there's an understanding there which just then breeds confidence it it breeds sort of an inspiring way of learning and knowing that it's going to be and it's going to be an exciting journey and I, I think you know what you said there really sort of encapsulates that in, in in a way which i think people who listen to the podcast a lot will have will have heard over the years Yes, yes. And I had a set of teachers in the late part of high school that they came in and they said, you're scholars and we want to know what you think about these interesting issues. And so the teacher might run up to the board and say, hey, you know, this scholar thinks this and this other one thinks that. And he'd be dashing the marker all over the place and get it on his hands and his forehead and he'd just be so excited. And then he'd turn to us and he'd say, this, this debate's been going on for, you know, the last century. And where do you 
come in on this? Where do you weigh in on this? And that was a, a shock to my system to some extent because I hadn't been in that environment. I'd been in an environment where they said, you know, the mark that you'll make on this conversation is to fill in whether it's A, B, C, or D is the correct answer, a little pencil mark. And these teachers would come in and say, no, we're going to give you a blank page and you're going to write the next chapter of this uh, academic discussion and you're going to be a scholar in it. And we want to hear from you because what, what you've been through and what you observe and what your thoughts, ideas, preferences are are really important. And that was just uh, mind-altering to me to think that I could engage in those conversations with those uh, scholars and writers and, and be a part of that even though I was just a teenager. Yeah, I, I love that because, like you say, so often it is just about that kind of. I think sometimes you don't want to ask the questions, you don't want to put yourself out there because there's that feeling like you should know it already, or if they see you as someone who's not quite sure of having all the answers, maybe that's going to sort of prejudice them against what they think. And like you say, the reality is, is those people who really want to know if you've got a question, how they can help you, and two, they want to know your thoughts and your understandings because that's gonna it's gonna change, like I say, your perception and your understanding of what your journey is, and, and that's gonna change. <laughs> change the world depending on how your journey sort of goes goes forward from that um tell me about the that journey from sort of understanding like i said what you've seen with you with, with with your with your foster sister and and your friend to actually you know we all talk about oh, i understand this and we can talk about what those experiences were but to the point of then thinking well i'm actually going to create something which is which is going to change lives or support people and and make a big difference in the world so uh, you know how did you get there to sort of equal opportunity schools from from just that initial experience to begin with yeah it's a great question i um it was I was teaching uh, in a high school, and I had a student that reminded me of my best friend, and I had been frustrated that I hadn't been able to change the classes and the opportunities that my best friend had in high school. I wasn't in a position of authority or someone who could come in and say, you know, Jamie, we believe in you, Dagnabbit, and we're going to give you this opportunity to do higher level work. Um, and so I hadn't had that, but then when I was a teacher in South Carolina, I was able to do that. And so the student uh, who was on my uh, running team um, and I would hear him debate these fascinating issues. You know, how do you know this? You know, how do we think about one another's stories? What's the way to test and, and understand this this claim? And I'm thinking, geez, this guy's ready for, you know, theory of knowledge and everything else. Let's go. And, uh, and I bugged him about it a little bit you're going to change the schedule i think a challenge for folks you know when at the student level when they make those transitions is oftentimes and i'm experiencing it now i, I back in the classroom a little bit this fall is that if you say i'm going to give you a more challenging class they often think you're going to give me more of the stuff that's really boring to me i don't want to, that sounds horrible versus hey i'm going to give you something different we're going to really enter these uh, issues as as thinkers um, instead of folks that are just you know studying the facts to try to catch up or build a foundation for this um, and so was able to to change his, his schedule um, despite the guidance counselor giving me a funny look and saying well i don't know if this kid can really do it um, and so when I had a great experience with him in class, his peers had a great experience, he had a great experience and said it was an opportunity of a lifetime and not many people get that. My kids actually pushed me because I, I was I was always trying to make things relevant and things like this. We study U.S. history and near the end of the class I said, all right, the final project is you need to take all the lessons that you've learned about U.S. history and make a significant positive change in your community or in society. 
and they said, well, you, you can't make us actually make a change. We, you know, that's, you can't make us do stuff was one of the quotes that really stuck with me. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, that's, that's how you show you understand it is you apply it to the, the current situation and things you're passionate about. Um, and so when that happened, I always tried to do what the students um, were doing as well to show that it was valuable. Do, I would do the writing assignments next to them. I would be involved. And so they caught me when I gave them the significant positive change project. And they said, well, what's yours, Mr. Cyrus? And I ended up saying, well, if I did this for one student and I'm thinking about and seeing a lot of kids with a lot more capability, we should try to do this school-wide. And so we set out an initiative to do that. And uh, doubled the size of the advanced programs, um, tripled the number of African-American students involved, closed some of these long-standing gaps, and we had seen the pass rates on the uh, advanced exams and college-level coursework go up by 20%. So we saw that kids could really do the work, uh, not just uh, being given access, but being successful with it. And um, that's what motivated me to launch a nonprofit because I th said, you know, I knew how many inadequacies I had in that process and how much I had yet to learn. And I thought, well, if I could do this, people anywhere could, could do this and find what we were calling missing students who are ready to take the things to the next level. Um, and that's what motivated me to go off and do something I knew nothing about, which was to try to start a nonprofit organization to help people around the country do that work. But I guess the the key element there, and it fits in so well with what you were saying to your your pupils in class, is that you want to make a difference, but you want to make a difference in in your community because then it becomes real. It's not just about, uh, like I say, a, a, an academic paper or or a tick box exercise. You're actually going to see change, and you know, with the education world literally being your community, like I say, that sort of one on one student compared to like I say, well, we we can extend this to wherever, and and then. Like I say, whatever the challenge is or, or the new journey that you're taking, there's, there's real sort of purpose there, isn't there? And I think that's often a key element. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, I said, well, I got this set of opportunities that my foster sister didn't get, that my best friend didn't get. And so I better darn well do something worthwhile with them and try to put those skills and those the things I had access to to use. So started calling up old professors and everyone else and saying, I, I don't know a thing about this, but it seems like a lot of kids could, could use uh, these opportunities and how would we go about making that happen? And and how did that sort of get implemented, like say, sort of not just literally within sort of your immediate environment, but then across, was it because it was a program and a, and a way of working and an understanding that people could then sort of adopt it wherever they were? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so... I, I literally had, was clueless. My mom still makes fun of me to this day. She was like, you called us up and said you're going to start a nonprofit. And did you know anything about that at all? I said, no. But what I did is I, you know, had an introduction from somebody to a reporter at the Washington Post who had written a lot about these things. And he didn't write anything about, about us because we didn't have much to speak of at the time. But he introduced me to other people. He said, these are other people working on it in Washington, D.C. And I rode the train up to meet with them. And was sweating terribly and worried because I'd never met anybody like this and uh, go in and say, you know, here's here's what we did in our one school and I'm thinking this could be useful to other people as well. And and they looked at it from the level of experience I, I didn't quite understand at the time, but they said, this is great. We're talking a lot about deficits and where kids are not yet up to grade level and this sort of thing, and especially underserved kids or low-income kids. We need to be talking about how they can do things at a really high level. Because even in our well-intentioned work 
to close gaps. Um, the the you're getting a lot of associations between a certain type of students and gaps and low-level performance and things. And so from their perspective, it was an opportunity to say, let's let's raise our own narrative and we're, when we're leading and doing this work and start to talk about excellence um, in equity. And so I was incubated by an existing nonprofit organization and an advocacy group um, that helped me get started, helped me incorporate the nonprofit and things like that. And then um, I went off to uh, graduate school in education and business school for a couple of years because I said, well, it's all about education for me, and business schools seem to understand how to replicate things and bring them to larger scale. So I'll go off and study that for a while. And we, in graduate school, we built a business plan for the nonprofit organization and got a team together and got early money to start it and all of those things. And so we were off to the races. Yeah, fantastic. And so, so how long were you sort of hands on in that? Because I know you eventually stepped down and you sort of, you know, you've allowed this sort of baby to mature into something which is helping so many people with so many people involved now. But sort of, sort of what was that journey from a sort of a timescale? But then also, like you say, you obviously decided that your life needed to take a slightly different, different, different focus, I guess, in that sort of day to day. Yes, absolutely. So um, I set off to DC in 2007. Um, and then had two years of graduate school somewhere in there um, and uh, stepped down in 2019. So about uh, about 10 years uh, running the organization. Um, and during that time, we went all over the United States, um, had consultations with people in other countries as well, and really said, you know, we can, we can help you because we've studied all the schools that have, have dealt with these issues effectively and how do they do it? What do they do? What works? What does the data tell us? Um, and we came in as a coach and a collaborator and a partner um, to them, uh, surveyed all their students and all their staff, looked at academic record data and started saying, you know, the crux of this is a conversation between adults and kids where you reach out and you say, hey, I believe you could take your work to the next level. Let's do this. And so those were sparking and animating conversations that really uh, took off and the organization when I left was in over 30 states it might be up to 40 at this point um, and uh, yeah a lot of interesting and exciting partnership work uh, happened there um, and uh, yeah it was I was leading it full-time outside of grad school for about 10 years. Amazing. And so what did you step into from that point of view? Is it a question of, like say, jumping into writing the book in, in, in terms of you know, wanting to get back sort of face to face in the classroom? What, what was it that kind of, sort of sparked that passion? Yeah. Um, you mean after I left Equal Opportunity Schools? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was a whirlwind. I mean, uh, we grew to, I don't know, 65 full-time staff members, um, by the time I was uh, was ready to step down, um, like I said, I had zero experience with any of this sort of thing. And then suddenly there's dozens and dozens of people on our team um, working with something like a thousand um, school and district leaders who had hired us uh, all over the country to work on these issues. Millions of students worth of data and all these sorts of things. So my head was spinning a little bit over all of that. And I thought, you know, at a decade in, it's a good opportunity to reflect and think about, you know, what did I learn? What did this mean? Um, so it was, a, yeah, I had been passionate for a while about telling the story in a book. I think, you know, you can do uh, a lot direct, you know, hand in hand with partners um, around the country. And at some point, 
you know, when you have 100 schools or more that have started to show that kids of every background can readily succeed at much higher levels, there's an advocacy piece to start to tell that story so that more and more people adopt that sort of work. So that's always been a passion of mine to go from the sort of direct work to how do you really advocate and help people understand that story so that they can take up that work as well. So yeah, when I left, I um, continued work on that I'd been doing for a while, but really amped up on a, a book um, that just came out uh, about a month ago. And And how was that process in terms of of, of, of the of the writing side of yes. it as well you know that's like i say that's very different day to day but again it's about that the focus and the experience and the passion that you had already yes yeah another tremendously steep learning curve for me um i uh i, th- I think they say you maybe write 10 pages for every one page that gets published so i was writing and writing and early drafts were were very horrible i wouldn't uh, want to subject anybody to the them but the, as you do that you sort of improve and get a lot of feedback and um, tried to take the the teamwork mentality that i'd had with equal opportunity schools so at, sometimes i would have a draft of the full manuscript and have dozens of people reading it from dozens of different perspectives and giving advice and things like that and then yeah during a lot of the pandemic sitting alone in the basement and just working away at it um you know four or five hours of of straight writing every day. Um, And yeah, it it was quite a journey. And I think a thing that was really important to me that I I sort of uh, had happened to me, I would say, during the process of running Equal Opportunity Schools, and I would say it's maybe something that most educators, teachers, administrators can relate to. There's a part of doing work with people um, in a leadership capacity, whether it's classroom leadership or otherwise, where you go in and you your job is to you know have it together and to really be on top of it and to have a sense that you know the answers and you know what's going on and you know what's needed and you know I think we think of that as that's going to marshal confidence in others and things like that and I tell the story in in the book in in uh, greater detail so people can get an experience of what that was like for me and think about their own learning journeys but but I talk about in the book as you know there was a point at which I kind of stopped learning um, because here we were doing this work with you know millions of dollars in grants um and and all these things happening and i started to see it as my job to have the answer to things and have the answer to everything and it's ironic especially i think in the field of education when so often uh the further we get in, in a career in the classroom school leadership district leadership or otherwise we we can get to this point where hey i'm not i'm supposed to give you the answer i'm not supposed to have uncertainty or a lack of knowledge or heaven forbid mistakes made um, and so a big part of the book for me was was rewriting a little bit of my own narrative as a step out of the you know as a successful ceo of a nonprofit. but where was the what was the journey that was really happening there if i if i no longer have to stand up and say i know all the answers to everything what do i what do i have that i need to learn about and i found a lot <laughs> <laughs> that I had made, you know, by way of mistakes along the way and things that I needed to think a lot more about. And so that the book became a process both to share the insights, but also in a way that's hopefully um, more authentic than some books, which could come out and say, hey, we figured it all out and we did everything great. And you read the book and you say, huh, <laughs> is this a real life <laughs> account here? Is this totally fictionalized? Somebody who had it all together. So I really pushed myself to, to re-enter the learning space and, and have more of an authentic uh, journey and experience and rewrite my own experience of that as well. 
Yeah, and it is fascinating, isn't it? That sort of looking out compared to sort of being in, looking out in the other, that other direction because you sort yes. of like say, you, you want you want to be kind of transparent. You want to say no, let's learn all this together. But there is that sort of expectation that you know I should know all this, and if I say I don't, what does that then mean? And I think the reality when people are in that situation is that it galvanizes everybody you're on a journey together and and the uh the results can be incredible and very very supportive for everybody but it's it's a, it's it's not uh, it's definitely not the starting point for anybody <laughs> yes yes and in the classroom especially i go back in there this afternoon and i was thinking even as i was explaining to you i probably go in to some extent with this mentality if i need to show up and tell everybody I know everything that anybody needs to know about anything because that's the persona we often adopt as teachers but I think I think you're right that it it sparks much more if we can we can break that habit and pattern um, and really be more authentic as learners ourselves even in the high stakes context that we face as educators yeah absolutely and I think it also it's really key in terms of what your environment and your community's like isn't it because it's very different going in seeing somebody every now and again as opposed to being you know a weekly teacher or seeing them every day or whatever that happens to be because the relationships are key because from there you can start to sort of have that slightly moving goalpost of kind of oh I understand where you're coming from I'm coming from I can let my guard down a little bit we can journey this thing together and uh, it's certainly something that I've done sort of during teaching sort of my drums and percussion experience because sometimes you, you you know there might be sort of six or seven when they first start and they can go all the way through school and while you might only see them for sort of half an hour or so a week that's a lot of journey time whereas some teachers might see a, a pupil every day for a year but then the relationship then changes to a different teacher then after that so it, it's fascinating how that goes and morphing that relationship as they mature as well and and like saying how you mature and how you learn as an educator and what you're trying to get across it's uh it's a fascinating thing and like i say as soon as i realized what i knew already i didn't have all the answers but as soon as that was okay it certainly made it a much more rewarding experience for me as well yes absolutely um so taking action is obviously something which must be in your dna so why is it that you decided to sort of step up and say i want to go um be a superintendent or i can make a difference you've got all that experience but it's it's one thing to be able to do that in the in the sort of the context that you did before but that kind of sort of real kind of nuts and bolts of kind of trying to make change in a system which is a fairly large tanker and (laughs) quite hard to make a big difference Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I I decided to run for state superintendent here in Washington because I I just think we know so much about, and I talked with a number of people when I was working this book, we know so much about what works for kids and for teachers. And so often we fail to put that into practice. And to me, as somebody who's been a social entrepreneur and a nonprofit founder and CEO, that's the opportunity if you have no idea how to solve a problem and you got a lot of struggle over here that that's you know that's that's tough if you have a really strong idea of how to solve it and you just haven't connected the dots yet that's where i felt like we we took off you know uh you know on fire in a sort of way with equal opportunity schools was was doing those sorts of things and then part of the book that i put together has an appendix and it looks through all of the evidence of what impacts student learning positively and we tried to break it down into a variety of categories and really do a relatively comprehensive literature review of when you look rigorously at evidence of impact what is most effective and and helpful um, to kids learning and i was doing this research 
uh, with a number of teams from Stanford and putting together all these findings. And I was simultaneously observing us spend billions of dollars in new money that came in uh, to support recovery after the pandemic um, and uh, student learning and these sorts of things. And that money was going without respect to evidence. And so I'm just sitting here thinking, geez, if you know the level of crises that people are experiencing, this is the time more than ever to start to connect evidence of what works to the resources that we're putting out there um, because our, our kids need and deserve that. And it's, you know, it's a tough time post-pandemic um, in, in most places in a variety of ways for adolescents who've been through really difficult times. Um, they have uh, social, emotional, mental health challenges that are really severe. Our, our governor declared it a state of emergency um, quite some time ago. Um, and yet we don't have a really strong plan to support kids yet. Um, let alone the academic uh, learning challenges that have resulted from that. And so my passion is to, is to say, you know, I may not be the career politician's side. I've spent my whole career in education. Um, but in that context, I, I know a lot about what works. And I think everybody from the parents to the students to the teachers are eager to get those sorts of solutions in place without necessarily fighting the culture wars or picking the most polarizing of issues let's just focus on the things that we know work and that aren't gonna you know get everybody up in arms and get them in place so it's a little bit mundane and boring but it's also incredibly exciting to me as a nerd to say you know i know i know what the evidence says and and people really need to have that evidence now more than ever yeah, I love that. And I think to sort of, let's say, moving those chess pieces around to say, look, I can I can paint this picture for you. And everyone's everyone's wanting to see that picture because they know, like say, they want to support children. They want it to be different. They know the support could be there. You know, one of the things that the pandemic really showed is that education could be different and was different overnight. And we're very much going trying to get back to what we were doing before. There's a whole other podcast for another year or so, but uh, yes. we are where we are, and we are, and we are doing what we're doing. And I think, like I say, with your background of actually saying that I've managed to create this amazing thing, which was left field from not just that kind of that seed of, of of where it came from, from those experiences you had when you were younger, and we were able to make those difference. I can sort of see those correlations there because, like I say you don't have to be a career politician. And in fact, most people would probably rather you didn't because they can say, I can understand where this is coming from. I can see the sort of the pureness of the education and the wanting to support and the wanting to help and actually painting that picture. People are just like, yeah, I want to be part of that journey. I want to be part of the audience to sort of see how that all comes together. So yeah, I think it's a, it's a fantastic opportunity for all those people that you're going to be able to support. And, uh, and I really hope they sort of, uh, they jump on board with it. Yes, yes. And what do you, that's a, a great um, example you're talking about with the pandemic of people being able to see quickly that things could change. And then you mentioned things snapping largely back. What do you think is behind that? Or how, where do you see the opportunity or possibility in that? Because it's, it's both, you know, concerning and exciting. You say we could see that we could change. But at the same time, there's a lot of forces pulling us not to. And how, yeah, how do you think about what that means for the future of education i think i think if we kind of take your experience it was that kind of you know if you saw somebody that had an opportunity to learn and to thrive you sort of created that environment and showed them that it was possible 
And I think the pandemic for some people was exactly the same thing. It's like, I'm really struggling in school. I need some personalized learning. I need to learn in my own way. And that may be completely online, but it might be a hybrid or whatever version that is. But we can create a way that's going to support you to learn in the best way possible. And that's really exciting. And I think there are so many people who benefited from that. And there are also people who also benefited from sort of much more kind of face to face and and the community aspect as well. But it really sort of, for me, sort of crystallized that idea that that personalized learning is really key. And I think what the pandemic showed is the fact it could be like that. I mean, there are some people who just do online school. There are some people because of their nomadic lifestyle come and go with education. Some of it's online, some of it's in person, some of it's sort of living in a different country and experiencing the culture. All of these things are available to so many people, but it depends on your circumstances and maybe your financial situation or where you live and where you've got access to it. But the exciting thing is if we start from that standpoint that anything's possible, you know, if there were a myriad of of online schools which were fundamentally available to lots of people, as well as the in-person idea or that sense that we can help people learn, you know, we've got so much information available to us, that kind of idea of teachers being a, a sort of a mentor as much as anything else and being able to sort of that shift in education and where it could move forward and in, in sparking that idea of what education can be for me taking it forward and of course this changes depending on your age and, and, and all those kind of things but I think it's a great starting point to see how it could morph mm-hmm. um, but it just seems that actually from a probably a political situation is that we need to make sure everything's okay and back to normal which means we need to make sure that the test results 2019 and now okay in 2023 which was certainly the case here when my my kids were going through it and you know it was important that the government turned around and said that the standard is as good now as it was in 2019 and everyone's everyone's back to normal which is you know part of a you know a four or five year political cycle it's part of you know what we need to do to make sure that we're level pegging with another country or better than another country but when you stand far enough back like you're saying you could see how this whole thing could be different then it was a great opportunity. But it's why I kind of, I love having these conversations because when you hear other people being able to make those changes and whether it's a non-profit, like I say, whether it's been able to to be a superintendent and changing the picture of the landscape there or someone listening who goes, I can really take those ideas. I'm going to read that book. I'm going to see how I can make that happen to the child in my class that I know can do that or, you know, a group of children in my neighborhood that can do it. Then you kind of think, I want the wholesale change, but I can certainly do the bit that I can do now. And that's kind of always been the sort of the dichotomy, I think, that it's come about from doing the podcast is you want the silver bullet and it is possible. It could be possible with someone who had that sort of foresight, but actually it's got to be much more probably about this conversation and the one I have next and the one you have next with somebody. And hopefully that kind of ripple effect is going to make a big enough difference sooner rather than later. Yes. Yes. And that's the beautiful part of education is, you know, even if there's not a silver bullet, there are all the conversations and each kid who gets a great education or gets to move up in their own thinking in a classroom becomes a mentor and advisor for so many others. If you keep the real core spirit of education alive, which is, as I mentioned, I I was challenged to do at times in my own life, but of being curious, of being a learner, of asking, you know, great questions like you do and and bringing ideas out to the world. Because if we continue to engage in these sorts of dialogues and uh, as curious learners, I think we expand expand tremendously, uh, especially as each generation goes by. Yeah, love it. Um, And just to sort of start rounding off, the acronym of 
fire is important here at Education on Fire. And by that, we mean feedback, inspiration, resilience, and empowerment. What is it that strikes you when you hear that? Yeah, I mean, I love that you start with feedback. I think that's one that is a, is a, it's been a big part of my life. In my grad school, they had a saying that feedback is a gift. And so I think it's, you know, often hard. It fits with a theme that we've been talking about of you got to have it together and have the right answer. So why would I need any feedback other than accolades? Well, cause to learn anything and to have any chance of developing further as a human being and to be a, to be a good uh, leader, to be a good student. Um, so I think feedback um, is, is a huge one. I've worked in my organizations over the years to um, even make it a part of every week. If I have a meeting with someone every week, I say at the end, hey, what, what could I do to be better partner to you to be a better colleague or a better boss or a better teacher instructor each of my students needs to you know give me feedback and write me a letter at the end of the year so I think it all starts there because if you're going to look at ways to grow and improve yourself um, you have people around you all the time that that have insights into that and if you don't create the right culture they'll never share it with you except you know to their friends behind your back when you're not paying attention so I think I think feedback is is huge um yeah, and I think inspiration is, is, you know, a core part of what I've always been about. Um, how do you really talk about that higher sense of what's possible? Um, we even launched an initiative with the White House and others over time to, you know, we really need to elevate that sense of what's possible and not just be talking about um, concerns uh, with gaps or deficits. It's really about all that we can do um, together. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I think those are huge. Um and then resiliency is the one to keep uh, keep going when you get too much feedback or overloaded or you're concerned or you're broken down by the ability of the rubber band to snap back to normal um, on things. Uh, so you got to keep at it because I do think to the point that you made each one of those conversations, each one of those mentorships and relationships um, springs with possibilities. Yeah, love that. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Well, do um, make sure that everyone knows um, where they can get the book or, or somewhere that you make sure they can connect with you and, and, and sort of follow your journey even more. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so the book is available for sale um, most places. Uh, Stanford University Press is the is the book, and it's The Kid Across the Hall and the Fight for Opportunity in Our Schools. Um, it's, uh, it's the top new release in our category and we're really excited about it. Um, so we'll be donating profits from that and everything. So hopefully people feel good about supporting it and supporting their own learning journey through it. Um, and then, uh, the campaign, uh, I'm launching is, uh, is SARS for superintendent and it's, uh, the website is read R E I D the number four W A schools read for Washington schools.com. Fantastic. And we'll have links to all of those things on the show notes as well. So people can uh, click straight through. Fantastic, Reed. Thank you so much. You're an absolute inspiration in terms of not just the story, but the action as well. And that's what I love the most when I get to chat to the people is just that it's not just about ideas and what we wish would happen. It's actually people who are actually standing up, doing something about it. And I think as we've sort of epitomized in this conversation, it's all about doing that journey together, <laughs> no matter where we stand within that organization or that community as well. So yeah, thank you so much, Steve, for sharing your story. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Your, your work is an inspiration and uh, it's a pleasure to have been here with you. Thanks. Thank you for listening and being part of this wonderful community. 
With over 300 episodes, I've collated 20 resources from guests that have been on the show to help you in your educational journey and those of you involved with young people. Just go to educationonfire.com and you can sign up on the homepage. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.